science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. Lots of stuff coming up today. We're going to talk about the uh, most recent silliness about COVID-19. That is oleandrin. We'll talk about uh, synthetic versus natural caffeine. And uh, I've also got questions for you. Let's start off with the first one. Cetyl alcohol is used as an emollient, an emulsifier, and a thickener in cosmetics. From where does it get its name? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. My background is in chemistry. I think that chemistry is the central science that ties the other sciences together. And uh, I like to believe that when you have an understanding of molecules and what they can and cannot do, you can take a look at the world and you know what is possible and what is not. When I'm not sitting here chatting with you on Sunday afternoons, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense and to make sure that you guys, the public, are up to date on what is happening in the world of science. Well, let me talk for a little bit about the most widely used uh, drug in the world, and that is caffeine. Caffeine is, of course, found in tea, it's found in coffee, and it is also added to a variety of soft drinks and to energy uh, beverages. But there are some interesting things uh, about uh, uh, caffeine. So let me me talk about this because there is uh, a battle that goes on in cyberspace about uh, artificial versus natural. There are many battles out there, you know, on, on the battlefield of cyberspace. There's the, the anti-vaxxers against the vaccine proponents. There is the anti-fluoride people against dentists. Uh, all kinds of things. And then there's the, this vigorous debate between whether or not synthetic substances are inferior to natural ones. Well, the, uh, the idea that natural substances have some sort of of vital force that cannot be replicated in in the laboratory, in the synthetic compounds, well, that was dismissed as early as 1828 when Friedrich Wöhler, a very well-known chemist in Germany at that time, synthesized urea and showed it to be identical to the natural urea that was isolated from urine. And he had made it essentially from uh, minerals. So there was nothing inherently magical about uh, uh, this natural substance. But nevertheless, the myth that there is something special about natural substances persists to this day. So let me tell you an interesting little story here. Because I recently had an inquiry from an individual who was very perturbed uh, after learning that the caffeine in his energy drink originated in a lab and not in a coffee bean. Well, I went on to explain that a molecule of caffeine is defined by its molecular structure and whether the atoms that make up that structure were put together by Mother Nature in in a plant that is in the coffee bean or by a chemist in a lab makes no difference. To the body, they look exactly identical because, I explained, they are identical. So I thought I had provided a pretty convincing argument. But then came a follow-up question. 
So how come I saw this report about scientists finding that the caffeine in an energy drink didn't come from the coffee bean but was synthetic? If there's no difference, how did they know this? Why was there a scientific paper published that was dealing with synthetic and natural caffeine if you can't tell the difference? Very interesting. Good question. Well, it is true that in terms of molecular structure, natural and synthetic caffeine are identical. There is actually a subtle difference in the isotope ratios that allows for the identification of a sample as being natural or synthetic. All right, stick with me here. It's worthwhile. The, uh, uh, the argument has a, a degree of difficulty in it, but I'll try to make it as clear as possible. Elements, of course, are the building blocks of all matter. Uh, elements uh, cannot be broken down into simpler substances. And an element is defined by the number of protons that it has in its nucleus. So every atom of carbon in the universe has six protons in its nucleus. That's what makes it into carbon. If it had seven protons, it would be nitrogen. But the nucleus can also contain, in addition to protons, neutrons. And these are particles that have the same weight as a proton. They have no charge. But they have no effect on the identity of the element. They do, of course, have an effect on the weight of the atom, but not on its identity. Atoms of the same element that differ in the number of neutrons are called isotopes. While roughly 99% of all carbon atoms have six protons and six neutrons, and they are therefore referred to as carbon-12. The 12 is the sum of the protons and neutrons. About 1% of all the carbons that occur in nature have seven neutrons and therefore are labeled as carbon-13. And a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction one in a trillion carbon atoms has eight neutrons. This isotope is called carbon-14. It has eight neutrons and, of course, six protons. The protons define it as carbon, but the total mass is 14, so this is carbon-14. Well, carbon-14 is radioactive, meaning that one of its neutrons can break down into a proton and an electron and thereby it now has an extra proton and it becomes an atom of nitrogen. The emitted electrons constitute beta rays and these can be detected. Well, in any sample containing carbon-14, after some 5,730 years, half the atoms will have decayed. And that is the basis of radiocarbon dating. That's how we can tell uh, if some material course, it has to have carbon in it, we can have a rough approximation of how old it is by just finding out the amount of radiation it emits, that is, how much carbon-14 uh, it has. And you'll understand why in, in just a moment. This is also the method for identifying whether a sample is natural or synthetic. Well, carbon-14, where does it come from? It forms in our atmosphere because so-called cosmic rays that come from the stars, like the sun, bombard our atmosphere, and when they interact with carbon, uh, with, uh, with nitrogen, they form carbon-14. 
Anyway, that carbon then reacts with oxygen and becomes carbon dioxide, and it's taken up by plants during photosynthesis. And then the plant, of course, uses this carbon dioxide to make all the molecules that, that it needs. It, it makes the proteins, the, the sugars, the, the vitamins out of that, that carbon dioxide. So what this means is taking caffeine as an example, that any caffeine in a coffee bean will have some carbon-14 from the photosynthesis from CO2 in the atmosphere. And as long as that plant is alive, it will keep taking up carbon dioxide so that its carbon-14 content is the same as that of the atmosphere. Once the plant dies, however, of course, it no longer engages in photosynthesis, it is no longer living, it's no longer building itself, and it's no longer taking up any carbon dioxide. So any of the carbon-14 that it still has will, of course, continue to decrease through the radioactive decay. And eventually, plant matter uh, under heat and pressure in the soil turns into petroleum. By the time the plant matter turns into petroleum, its carbon-14 content will have virtually disappeared. This is the key to telling the difference between natural and synthetic and radiocarbon dating. And I'll continue that story, but first we have to take a little bit of a break and we have to check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Let me get back to my discussion about natural and synthetic caffeine. So what we've established so far is that while a plant is alive, it is photosynthesizing, meaning it is taking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Some of the carbon atoms in that carbon dioxide, a very small percentage, but some are of carbon-14, which is radioactive. As soon as a plant dies, it no longer takes up any carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So any of the carbon that is already present in the plant, the carbon-14, will start to decay and emit beta rays. So this radioactive decay will then continue. And uh, the half-life is something like 5,300 years. So after that many years, the amount of carbon will have been reduced to half. So by comparing the radioactivity of a sample of living material to material that no longer has anything uh, in it living, one can tell how old that sample is because you know that the amount of carbon-14 decreases to half the amount every 5,000 or so years, and you know how much you're starting with. So you can make a very good estimate with so-called radiocarbon dating. Now, the same concept can be used to determine if a sample of caffeine is synthetic or if it is natural. If it is extracted from a coffee bean, then that caffeine will have the same amount of carbon-14 in it as there is in the atmosphere. However, if it is synthetic, then it was made from chemicals that are derived from petroleum. And those chemicals have been sitting in the ground for a long time, undergoing radioactive decay, so they will have virtually no carbon-14 left in them. So by determining the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12, one can tell whether or not a sample of caffeine came from a coffee bean or whether it came from the laboratory. 
Well, commercially, caffeine can be obtained either from the decaffeination of coffee, coffee beans or through chemical synthesis. Well, it turns out that in general, synthesis is cheaper and most of the caffeine that is added to soft drinks and energy drinks is produced on a massive scale in China. Once produced, it is the same as any other caffeine. Well, almost. Well, the difference in C14 content, uh, I mean, this is only of academic interest. Uh, That really doesn't matter. That doesn't affect any kind of chemical activity. However, there may be some other subtle differences. Why? Because of traces of processing chemical residues. In any chemical reaction, the product will contain traces of the reagents used to make it. The extent to which this happens depends on the quality of the manufacturing process. And there have been cases where Chinese facilities have been suspect in terms of their quality control. Now, I'm not talking specifically only about, you know, caffeine uh, producers, but, you know, there have been stories about all kinds of things, about uh, the plastics made in China and food additives made in China, sometimes not being subjected to the same kind of quality control as, as we would like to have uh, here. However, it is also, I think, judicious to point out that in the case of caffeine that is obtained by decaffeinating coffee beans, there can also be traces of extraction solvents. And that could be an issue as well. Basically, though, when it comes to the consumption of caffeinated beverage, the question that should be asked is not whether the caffeine is natural or synthetic, but rather what impact caffeine may have on one's health. So I hope that being able to explain this fascinating nuance about how it is possible to detect whether a substance is natural or synthetic. But in the case of of caffeine, it really doesn't matter because the final molecule is the same, except for very slight differences in uh, trivial carbon-14 content. But that trivial difference is enough to tell us something about the age of the sample and about whether or not it is uh, uh, natural or or synthetic. Uh, I think Seema has a question related to this. Hi, Seema. Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you? Okay. Uh, So I have a question. It's interesting that you're talking about caffeine. Um, I have a friend who has a really big problem with migraines, and she was telling me sometimes when she has coffee, she feels a little bit better for a while, but then it comes back again. So do you find like a... This is true. Yeah, this is is something that has been investigated, and caffeine can have a a mitigating effect on on migraines. Of course, it's not nearly as as, uh, effective as the... Uh, migraine drugs that are out there. But is there other natural things that like she could take uh, that would help other than caffeine to not, ease migraines? Uh, not that I know of, not from migraines. Migraines, of course, are very serious headaches. Yeah. And uh, no, that you need, uh, you need to consult a doctor for prescription drugs okay. for that. And but, I have one other quick yeah. question, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, uh, for nail fungus, what is a good way of treating it? I mean, I heard laser helps, but then well, I yeah, I, the 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 jury is kind of out on that one. Yeah. Some some people have success with it, others not. Yeah. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, medications also that can be applied to the nail, and ones that can be taken orally. Yeah. The ones that are taken orally are probably the ones that are most effective. But then the question is, do you want to be taking long term medication? 
you know, to control nail because fungus? Because I'm trying one that's called Jublia, and uh-huh. it's uh, on my nail. I've just so a little bit on one toe. Right. So the doctor told me, the podiatrist, I have to put it for one year. So I've been using it, and I don't find it's helping. Like, I used it for a few months so yeah. far, and it's just like a little gel that you put on the nail, yeah. and uh, uh, yeah. I don't find I, it I, I think that the, the products that are sold for the antifungal are not very effective. Oh, really? Eh? Yeah. So it's better yeah. maybe not to not to use that. But laser, what do you think? That's well, the the laser. Uh, some people are very successful with it. In others, yeah. it has done nothing. So, so it depends on the yeah, person, yeah. I guess. Without trying, you don't know. Okay. 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 Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Let me repeat my my question. Uh, I would have thought that someone would have come up with an answer for that. Settle alcohol. It's used as an emollient, emulsifier, and a thickener in cosmetics. And I'm asking you where it got its name. Where does the name settle come from? Uh, so I said it's used as an emollient, emulsifier, and thickener. An emollient, that term comes from uh, the Latin word for soft, skin softener. Uh, emollients are substances that you put on your skin in order to prevent moisture in the skin from evaporating. So an, another term for emollient would be moisturizing agent. And uh, moisturizing creams provide you with a, a layer of fatty material that is similar to the skin's sebum and coats the skin and prevents moisture from evaporating. That's how it softens the skin. So that's what an emollient is. Emulsifiers are chemicals that allow immiscible substances to mix. So, for example, oil and water, as you know, don't mix. Oil floats on top of water. And emulsifiers and chemical that would allow them to mix. The classic example is a salad dressing made with oil and vinegar. And if you add a bit of egg yolk to it, the lecithin in the egg yolk allows the water and the, uh, the oil to, to mix. So, in cosmetics, emulsifiers are very often used because a moisturizing cream has a certain water content in order to allow it to be spread and on, on the skin. But of course, it also has to have the active material, which is the, the oil that, that prevents moisture in the skin from evaporating. So to have a smooth consistency, you use an emulsifier. So an emulsifier is a molecule, one end of which dissolves in oil, the other end dissolves in, in water. And that's uh, does that. It also acts as a thickener and uh, used in cosmetics. So I'm asking you where the name Settle comes from. All right, we've got to take a break here. We'll check the news and be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, let me go to Jerry. Jerry. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Yes, sir. <clears throat> comes from the word cetacean, which is the species uh, name for whales. Um, I believe they got the fat from the whales and, and got the alcohol from there. Very good, exactly. Subtle alcohol was originally derived from whales. And uh, whale oil uh, was, at one time, a very prized commodity because it was used uh, as the fuel in lamps. It was also used to make soap, and uh, you know, it uh, played a big role in, in uh, uh, causing uh, a drop in the whale population in, in the world. Well, these days, settled alcohol does not have to be extracted from whales. It can be produced, actually, from palm oil. 
palm oil is very closely related in molecular structure to acetyl alcohol. Uh, it just uh, needs one end of the molecule, which is a carboxylic acid, to be converted into an alcohol, which is a simple chemical process. So here's a situation where we have a synthetic compound, the synthetic acetyl alcohol, which actually is more environmentally friendly than uh, is the acetyl alcohol that is, quote, natural, which is derived from whales because... You don't have to hunt whales in order to, to do this. Of course, there are people who will also tell you that, that uh, 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 palm oil is also not a benign substance, exactly. you know, because uh, you have to uh, basically uh, uh, cut down forests yeah? Yeah, in order yeah. to, to plant it. So, you know, everything is, is more complicated than it first seems. But you're quite right that... Uh, uh, that is the the reason that we use the term settle uh, alcohol. Excellent. Very good. Okay, let That's me better. let me just let me ask you another question. Okay. See if we can uh, keep this mo uh, going. What movie introduced the expression "shaken, not stirred"? Uh, that would be, I would imagine, the first James Bond. Doctor No. Uh, it's a James Bond, but I don't know. It was, uh, yes, yes. It, Goldfinger? No. It, no, no, it was Dr. No. You're Dr. right. No, it I was think. Dr. No. Yeah, hmm. it was Dr. No. Um, okay, let me ask you another one. Okay. Later accused of murder. This guy starred in the 1978 thriller Capricorn 1, which with the plot of that movie was that the, the moon landing was faked. Is that Robert Vaughn? No. No way. It's not. I'll give you oh. another clue. He was an athlete. Later accused of murder. Oh, O.J. Simpson. Yes, it was O.J. Oh. Simpson. Very oh. good. You're you're doing uh, well here. <laughs> okay. Uh, what contribution did a Scottish veterinarian make to reducing bruised bums in 1887? Oh, that's maybe the invention of springs or shock absorbers. No. Hey, you're close. It was the the pneumatic tire uh, ah. to blow up a tire on a on a bicycle. Actually, that was oh. all right. Anyway, pardon? Was it a veterinarian? Is that what you said? Yes, he was Dunlop. Oh. Dunlop oh, was Dunlop. a veterinarian. Oh, I yeah, didn't yeah. know he was a vet. Oh, yeah, thanks. he was a veterinarian. Learned yeah. something. Okay, very good. You did thanks, very God. well there. <laughs> okay. Have a great afternoon. Bye. Bye. All right. Let me get back to. I suggested I was going to talk about uh, uh, oleander. Well, the oleander plant, very pretty plant, uh, nice flowers, and and it's in many gardens. It's it's uh, you know widely cultivated because of its beauty. But now, thanks to a conversation between millionaire Mike Lindell, who's the CEO of My Pillow Company, and you know those are the ads that you see uh, with great frequency overnight on many uh, TV networks. And the conversation between him and President Trump, uh, well, an idea was planted, or at least the seed of an idea, about using uh, one of Oleander's constituents as a treatment for COVID-19. Well, this seed, fertilized with some magical thinking, uh, is now growing into, I think, a toxic belief. The substance in question is oleandrin. And this is a chemical that Phoenix Biotechnology, which is a Texas company, has been exploring for years as a possible treatment for cancer and for neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, and also for its antiviral properties. 
Uh, this compound oleandrin is extracted from the leaves of the plant uh, and they use liquid carbon dioxide. Uh, liquid carbon dioxide is a very effective solvent. It's a very good one to use because it is easy to get rid of it. So you use it to extract the chemical and then the CO2 evaporates and leaves behind the desired chemical. So oleandrin is extracted from leaves of the plant with, with liquid carbon dioxide, and the, you get a residue that is left behind that can be studied for any possible medicinal properties. Well, of course, the notion that compounds found in plants may serve as drugs is on solid footing. Many drugs such as quinine and digoxin and morphine and colchicine and vincristine and paclitaxel, these are all isolated from plants. Of course, they are highly purified, but they all come from plants. It is common practice in pharmacology to investigate plant extracts for therapeutic properties. So it is not unreasonable for a company to probe possible medicinal effects of oleandrin. What is unreasonable is to make claims about what the compound may do without having sufficient evidence. Well, the company has referred to some trials carried out at the University of Texas uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center that showed lack of toxicity. Uh, nothing of this has been published. Preliminary tests at the U.S. Army's lab at Fort Detrick have demonstrated some activity against Ebola and Marburg viruses, and this is what stimulated research into the possible anti-SARS-CoV-2 effects. The results of what we call in vitro study, which means in the lab, examining the reproduction of the coronavirus in certain cells have been reported in what is called a preprint by researchers at the University of Texas. They were working in conjunction with Phoenix Biotechnology, and uh, one of the authors of the paper works for Phoenix Biotechnology. This publication has not been peer-reviewed, and until it is, it cannot be regarded as part of the scientific literature. The cells that they use, these viral cells, are commonly used as host cells for growing viruses because they do not secrete interferon when they are infected by a virus. And interferon is a chemical used by the immune system to destroy invaders, and in its absence, viruses can multiply more effectively. The viral cell line was originally developed from kidney cells of the African green monkey, and these are significantly different from human cells. They're specific cells that can be used to see how viruses multiply in, in the lab. Anyway, this study was brought to President Trump's attention, uh, and uh, he showed a significant interest uh, uh, in this. Uh, of course, Trump has no background in science whatsoever. And uh, so Liddell came to talk to him about this because he's become a director of the of the company. And uh, not only that, uh, he was backed by Dr. Ben Carson, who is the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. He was also at this meeting with Trump to lend support to the supposed benefits of oleandrin. Well, unlike Dell, Carson, of course, does have some scientific background. He has, he's a, a former uh, neurosurgeon. But Carson has a history of promoting questionable supplements, having had a long association with Manatech, a company that has many skirmishes with the authorities over false advertising. Carson at one time even claimed he had beaten his prostate cancer with the company's products. And uh, Lindell is a scientific neophyte, but Carson is a neurosurgeon who, of course, should know better 
and should not be talking about uh, you know the benefits of an untested uh, drug well i hope that this uh, this is going to die away and uh, uh, maybe trump has learned his lesson from hydroxychloroquine and is not not going to be jumping on this bandwagon but he has expressed interest in oleandrin anyway there's no science here whatsoever and uh, when i hear this kind of nonsense i feel like putting a pillow over my head and not my pillow all right listening to the dr joe show we'll take a break take a look at traffic and be right back Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we have Al on the line. Hi, Al. Yeah, hi, Dr. Joe. Thanks for taking my call. How are you doing? Good. Good. Uh, I'm just wondering if you had a chance to uh, to look at that uh, study that I, I sent you about the uh, uh, Journal of uh, Pediatrics about the uh, return to school with the school children. What was that? I, I don't know. Well, it was a recent study that was conducted in Boston, uh, which uh, did a thorough and very detailed study of the infection rate of school children that were admitted to local hospitals. And they found, a, they determined there was an alarmingly large uh, rate of asymptomatic rates of infection. Uh, that otherwise went undetected. And their concern from the study um, deals with the possibility that once the school children are reintroduced in the close quarters of the school environment, uh, they will then be returning home infected and bringing the infection. Yes, home of course. I mean, this is a concern. Yeah. And which will lead to, a, again, a, a huge increase in the number of infections. So, uh, my my concern was that uh, uh, the Quebec government's uh, education ministry to open the schools as early as next week should be delayed until they have reviewed this particular study because it does raise some very very serious. Yes, concerns. you're not you know you're not alone with this concern. I mean, there are several petitions that are circulating in Quebec that are asking the government to to delay the opening of the schools. Uh, yeah, but the, the study was prepared by the prestigious uh, um, Journal of Pediatrics. Which yes, a, I mean, there, there, there have been a lot of publications on yeah, this. Yeah. And, uh, of course, in the States, there already are, are cases where they opened up schools and had to close them down. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But apparently, you know, in 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 Quebec, uh, there are all kinds of safety measures that are are being taken. Uh, you know, from what is it from grade six up, they have to be wearing masks. No, I understand. Uh, they, but, you know, they they're... check for ventilation. I don't know. I I really I don't know how to think about this because, of course, there are also risks in not going back to school. Uh, also, you, the school, you know, the school children have not been tested. So we don't know if they are potential carriers. No, that's right. We don't know. But now, anyway, yeah. the other the question I have for you before we run out of time, with your vast knowledge of organic chemistry, you mentioned earlier about you know the life cycle of plants converting carbon dioxide right. into carbon, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have also uh, conducted a lot of reading on the subject of plant life. Uh, is it conceivable, Doctor Joe, that Within the DNA um, that is passed on from generation after generation of plants, could there be consciousness involved? Because the ability of plants to be able to 
conjure up very complex chemicals to counter, uh, say, fungal attacks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, it's not consciousness. I mean, what what we're talking about there is evolution. Is it the, pure chemistry at work? Yes, sure it is. I mean, uh, if by chance uh, a chance mutation occurs in a plant that causes it to form a chemical that, let's say, wards off insects, then the the plants that have that mutation are more likely to survive than other plants. And therefore, they will breed and they will pass on their DNA that codes for that particular natural insecticide. I mean, this is so, this is the essence of uh, of evolution. And, so uh, the you DNA know, is constantly evolving from generation to generation. Absolutely, absolutely. So it, it, it's like we pass this along, it worked, we won't change it. However... This part of the DNA has to now change because we experienced during our life cycle this particular. Yes, any threat. any mutation of the DNA that yeah. confers a benefit on the host means that that host is more likely to survive than others that have not had that mutation. Okay. Right, and our DNA is also evolving along. The it same, certainly is. It certainly way. is. Okay. It okay, certainly that's absolutely is. Absolutely fascinating. That's it is. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Joe. Okay, you're very welcome. You have a good day. Okay. I've got another question for you guys. In 1904, Thomas Hicks won the marathon at the St. Louis Olympic Games. He took a stimulant, and this stimulant at the time was legal. And then in 1920, Agatha Christie based the plot of her book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, on this same chemical. What is this chemical? Which back in uh, 1904 uh, was used in the marathon legally as a stimulant. However, it was used as a murder weapon in 1920 in Agatha Christie's book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Uh, if you know the answer to that, give us a call at 514-790-0800. I've always liked The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Uh, because, of course, it tells a very nice chemical story, uh, but also because it is the first uh, book in which uh, Hercule Poirot is introduced. And uh, Hercule Poirot is, is one of the most interesting characters in uh, literary fiction uh, because he solves crime not, not uh, with guns but, uh, or you know, his fists, but with his little gray cells. Uh, he is capable of just thinking through problems. And, uh, of course, this is uh, exactly in the same vein as Sherlock Holmes or, or uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Auguste Dupin. These are detectives who, uh, for lack of a better term, are called consulting detectives. So they don't go into action like the police detectives, but they, they can unravel crime just by making observations and coming to the appropriate uh, conclusion. And uh, the mysterious fair styles introduces Hercule Poirot. Uh, Hercule Poirot, uh, of course, then uh, went on to play a role in many, many Agatha Christie uh, books. And and uh, Agatha Christie uh, uh, wrote many scientifically based novels. Of course, her her novels were fictional, but they had a good degree of science in them. Uh, for a very simple reason, Agatha Christie had training as a pharmacist. So she, she knew quite a bit about, uh, about chemistry. And uh, she used a lot of that in, in, uh, in her books. And uh, 
some of them actually had a relationship to real life. The, one of her uh, books is called The Pale Horse, which is all about uh, poisoning with thallium. And in the story, it's a, a baby is poisoned with thallium. And, uh, or at least in, in real life, uh, a baby is poisoned with thallium. And the nurse who is looking after this baby in the hospital remembers reading the Agatha Christie book and recognizes the symptoms uh, in the baby as thallium poisoning and comes to that conclusion, tells the doctors what she suspects, and it actually turns out that's what happened. The baby got into some, some insecticide based on, on thallium and was poisoned. So very interesting. All right, I guess we will leave this question to next week about Thomas Hicks and the 1904 St. Louis Olympics and uh, what stimulant he took that at that time was legal. But Agatha Christie uses a poison in her book, Mysterious Fair Styles. That is it. We are smack out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Till then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>